Welcome back, everyone. I am here with Dr. Paul Smith, who is a famous remote viewer from the 1980s, 90s, and today as well. So welcome, Paul. It is a pleasure to finally meet you. Well, thank you. I'm actually looking forward to this. You seem like a nice guy with intelligent questions, so this is going to be fun. Well, I'll probably disabuse you of that notion later in this in this call. But let's let's just start with brass tacks. Tell me a little bit about your journey in the US military, you know, briefly what you did before in the days before you joined the remote viewing program and how you got assessed and recruited for that particular program, timelines, et cetera. Okay. Well, I actually enlisted to be an Arabic linguist in 1976. I was at Brigham Young University, newly married, wanting to get a degree in Middle Eastern studies. Had taken lots of Hebrew classes, but BYU at that time didn't offer Arabic classes. It now does. And my then wife said, well, if you want to learn Arabic and, you know, we're not, we're we're basically starving here. The Army's got a language program. They'll pay you to learn Arabic. And I at first didn't really look want to join the army and i went down and talked to the recruiter and oh that was my big mistake because they talked me into it right so i ended up enlisting and going off and getting arabic language training on let me let me let me stop you right there you're actually lucky that they actually sent you to arabic training for all you know you could have been like oh thanks for signing up now you're gonna now you're gonna well, maintain well, back then, helicopter the engines specified arabic language training and they had been hammered <laughs> by various congressmen for not honoring contracts so i was definitely going <laughs> now the unfortunate thing was that if I had signed up two weeks later, I would have got a $20,000 signing bonus. But it, and they didn't tell me that. They didn't tell me mm-hmm. that that was coming because they're, they, you know, they wanted their quota and they're afraid they'd lose me, you know. So that would have been awesome, but it didn't happen. So I ended up going to Arabic language training. And, you know, that's a long process. That's a year and a half mm-hmm. of, of training after basic training. And then they sent me to the 101st Airborne at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, to be in, a, in what they called a COMEX, a communications exploitation platoon. So in other words, I was there. But we didn't have really any big mix-ups in the Middle East at the time. So I spent almost my whole time doing motor stables. So changing oil in Jeeps, making sure the air pressure was right in gamma goat tires and stuff like that. And I'm thinking, oh, there's got to be something better than this. And one of my friends decided he was going to apply for OCS, Officer Candidate School. And he asked me if I'd just go around and kind of hold his hand because he was a little bit nervous about the process. And I ended up doing it with him. And he ultimately got rejected and I got accepted. (laughs) So (laughs) I I ended up going to OCS at Fort Benning. And after OCS, after I graduated, I I sort of blundered into airborne training and got uh, trained as a paratrooper, more or less. Five jumps, you become an expert after five jumps, right? Not not something I was thrilled about. I, I enjoyed jumping out of the airplane and floating down, but those landings were always I hit like a sack of bricks every time. <laughs> and it wasn't the most pleasant experience from that perspective. But anyway, lots, lots of broken legs too. You know, people do get those. I was fortunate I didn't, although I almost brained myself on one. I don't know if you want these kind of war stories, but we were jumping these T10 shoots, which don't aren't steerable. You just go out and you go where the wind wants you to. And the problem with them is they can start start to uh, oscillate sometimes. And mine started going because it was a hot day and I hit some thermals, I think, over the drop, drop zone. But it starts oscillating and really it's going really bad. 
and I come down backwards on a downward oscillation. Whack! <laughs> it's like being it cracked a whip, you know? Knocked my helmet up over my eyes, bent my glasses, and kind of stunned me. I was laying in there, and then one of the tech sergeants comes running up. Sir, sir, you okay? <laughs> I ain't never seen buddy land that hard. <laughs> it was interesting. It kind of put me off wanting to do that. But I went off mm-hmm. to further training and and through a set of circumstances where which really kind of unpredictable. I ended up going to be the intelligence officer of a special forces unit in Germany. And that turned out to be really an awesome assignment. It was it was great. <laughs> two two weeks of the winter, you were mandated to go do downhill ski, ski training on a local German ski slope. So I learned how to ski at uh, taxpayers' expense. <laughs> it was a winter warfare unit, you know. That was one yeah. of their assignments. Yeah. So so they even wanted the staff to at least know their way around on skis. And so I got to do that. It was it was pretty awesome. Did you get lessons, or did you just? Oh try yeah, to figure it out on your own. well, see, a special forces mission. People think their job is to go kick doors and and shoot people, right? And they do that, but their main job is to teach other people to do that. You know, the, the idea is you you drop a special forces eighteen behind enemy lines, they go up round up a battalion size, you know, roughly five hundred partisans, train them how to be effective fighters, and then provide the kind of core support that they that that battalion size unit needs to go out and harass the enemy behind enemy lines. And so anytime they get a chance to teach anything, they do it because it helps improve their teaching skills mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And so they taught the, the ski training and uh, they're quite good. They were really quite good. So you learned ski training and this is in Bad Tolz? Bad Tolz, Germany. Germany. Yeah. And what sort of intelligence work did you do for the special forces unit? Because it had a huge scope, right? Yeah, this is kind of unique. At that time, the area of operations for this particular unit was all of Eastern Europe, Soviet Union, Middle East, North Africa, Western Europe, if it ever came to that. And they needed intelligence ranging all the way from the current deployment of Soviet strategic weapons, nuclear weapons, all the way down to the boot print pattern of Czech border guards. And that was a huge scope of information that they required. And it was really a fascinating job, I have to tell you. It was really interesting. And this is a random question, but at the time that you were at Bad Tolts, is that the same time they had those Davy Crockett man-portable nuclear weapons? Let's just say it might have been. <laughs> okay, I had to ask the question. <laughs> yeah, it could okay. have been. Yeah. yeah, yeah, understood. And then while you were there, what, what periods of time were you at Bad Tolts? What years? So that was from 1979 to 1982. Okay, and so that was slightly before, or maybe a year before Noble Archer. I think it was that was 83, where they had that um, large exercise and and maybe incident, pretty much near the close to the peak of the Cold War. I thought you were going to say that was just a year before I was born, <laughs> before you were born. <laughs> no, I was think I was thinking of that earlier in the discussion, but I didn't. I, I didn't. I kept my mouth shut. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Follow up on the boot print pattern. What kind of information could you elicit? That is it just basically like well, so, the Russians were manning it, or the or the the well, East partly, Germans, or they could tell who they were dealing with if they were being tracked, or if they were tracking somebody. They know who they're doing, but. Also, if they were in, infiltrating on foot, they were playing with the idea of, of having a certain boot print pattern on their own boots so that people wouldn't realize it was Americans sneaking in, right? So Interesting. Okay. I don't know if they ever did anything with that. 
first of all, that's very hard information to get. You, you probably wouldn't be surprised at how difficult it would be to find out. These days, it'd be easy because there are probably tons of check Internet. border guard. Mm -hmm. Well, no, check border guard boots on the surplus market. <laughs> you, know, yeah. you could probably buy them. And something like that you might find on the Internet today, but I probably ought to do it sometime just to, for the fun of it, see what, what turns up. So anyway, that was that was great, even despite the monthly parachute jump, which I never looked forward to. But, you know, I survived. Well, after that, I went back for more training at Fort Huachuca and got assigned to Fort Meade as a Mideast desk analyst. And I was working partly the Iranian problem and, and partly mm -hmm. just about anything else that came down the pike. And I was in that job for three months. Well, by the way, which what year what year were you did you so that would have been eighty three? It may have eighty three is when I got to Fort Meade. And then what was the Beirut bombing? It was eighty two or eighty three. I right now don't remember the okay. date. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that, that's on me because I know eighty seven was when activity in the Persian Gulf really spiked because I think we effectively sank the Iranian Navy. Most people don't realize that, but in eighty seven, that's effectively what happened. So it really got dicey starting in 88, of course, because that's when, let me think, let me, no, that's not right. Okay, so Russia invaded Afghanistan in 1980. And was it 82 to 88 or I'm, somewhere in there, the Iraqis and the, and the Iranians got into a big fight, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Really well. I think it was 82 to 88 or it might have been 80 to 88. Those two mixed it up. And of course, that heated things up in the Gulf pretty heavily. We were providing intelligence and other support to the Iraqis, ironically, mm -hmm. against the Iranians. And well, that, that's a story we can get to in a little bit. So let me go back to Fort Meade here. Yep. So what I was not aware of, and I'm going to tell you how I got into the remote viewing program now, because I know that's one of your questions. I got this assignment at Army Operations Group, is what they called it, just doing Mideast related intel stuff. And what I didn't know is I'd moved in next door to the training and operations officer of the remote viewing unit and across the street from one of the newest remote viewing training person, right? So is that from Gavin? Oh, no. Skip Atwater. Okay. No, I got Skip it. Atwater is next door to me. He went by Fred back then. So Fred Atwater and Tom McNear lived across the street. In fact, I and Tom had kids about the same age. Our wives became friendly. We became, they're probably our best friends at Fort Meade during that period. But of course, I was friends with Skip as well. And I couldn't figure out what they did because they always wore civilian clothes, even though their doors said Captain Thomas McNear, Captain Fred Atwater, right? Tom had a full beard. He always wore jeans or an open-collar shirt. Skip always walked around with a, I forget what you call those kind of shirts that Panamanians wear all the time. And I, I wonder, what are they doing? I mean, normally speaking, if you live on a military post, you wear a uniform, mm -hmm. even if you're in like human intelligence, because then you change into something else when you go go out and to do your job, right? But these guys were always in civilian clothes. And I asked them one time, I said, well, what do you guys do? They said, well, we can't tell you. I said, well, I know you can't tell me what you do specifically, but you can at least tell me which intelligence discipline you're in. Is it human intelligence or signals intelligence or imagery intelligence, whatever? And they said, none of those. And I go, none of those? 
but there isn't anything else. <laughs> That's it. You know, there's Mazent. I, I asked about that too. They said, no, there's none of none, it's none of those. I said, okay. I said, trying to trying to te- you know, figure it out, elicit some information. I said, well, well, tell me this. Do you do you travel a lot in what you do? And oh uh <laughs> how do they choose to answer that question? Because it could be yes or no or both. Well, Tom says, well, sort of. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> sort of, you know, this would have been, this is probably June or July of, of 1983, when we have this conversation, just to give you the time back. And so that was the end of that conversation. I'm totally mystified, totally unenlightened and thinking, whatever it is they do must be pretty darn interesting. <laughs> so anyway, fast forward to, I want to say it's probably August, it might have been late July early August, and I get a knock on the door, and it's Tom and Skip. And I said, well, come on in. This is like at lunchtime or something. And and they said, you know, we think you might be good at what we do. I said, what do you do? And hoping they'd tell me this time. I said, well, we can't tell you, but what we're going to do is we're going to give you some, some tests to take. And if you score within the parameters that we're looking for, then we'll bring you on board. Or will you bring you in, we'll read you on, and you'll have an opportunity to volunteer, right? Mm-hmm. So I scored apparently where they wanted because uh, they invited me in over to the offices, which were only about a five-minute walk from, from our quarters, it turned out. And these old beat-up ramshackle buildings that dated to World War II. There were temporary buildings back then. Paint was peeling off the outside. They, there was a metal gratings over the windows, you know, and it was the, the front porches creaked as you went up. The porch, French porch steps creaked as you went up them. And so I go in and Tom takes me in the back and sits me down and he says, okay, here, sign this. And I had to fill out this, well, civilians are called non-disclosure agreement. It was a read-on statement for a special access program. And it was compartmented in certain ways. And it was really, I, you know, of course, I was read on at that point, too. So you had like a TSSCI clearance, basically. Thank you. That's what I was looking for, a TSSCI, yeah. yeah. And, of course, those, those read-on statements are pretty pretty serious as well. But this was even more than that. It was like, you can't tell anybody you're in the army that doesn't already know. You have to disallow any or just deny any connection to the military when you're away from the post and that kind of thing. And and a bunch of other stuff. It, it reminded me, I like to compare this to that scene in Men in Black, where Tommy Lee Jones is reading on Will Smith to the Men in Black program and says, you'll have to sever all human connections, have your fingerprints erased. You know, that kind of stuff was <laughs> like that. And so I signed it, and then Tom says, okay, well, what we do here is that we collect intelligence against foreign threats using a parapsychological discipline called remote viewing. We're essentially inviting you to volunteer to become a psychic spy. And I'm going, and he says, now, now you don't have to tell me until tomorrow. You, you can go home, and these are the things you can tell your wife about this, because it does involve a significant career change. And I said, no, no, don't, I don't need to do that. I wanted, I'm definitely accepting this, this, I'm volunteering for this. And he looked kind of stunned, but what he didn't know was some of my background, which was as a kid, I had loved and up through, you know, young adulthood, I loved reading science fiction. And I really liked science fiction involved extrasensory perception, ESP, like Andre Norton's Psychic Cats or, or Zena Henderson's Pilgrimage series, that kind of thing, right? And then I had been involved in a science fair project in junior high that involved ESP, you know, reading the 
the Zener cars that got the wavy lines and the stars and stuff mm-hmm. you see at the beginning of Ghostbusters. I, I, I was involved in that. It was a total failure. Nobody had any evidence of any kind of psychic functioning. So I'd become a kind of a mild skeptic. And as he's telling me this about this, I'm thinking, I used to really be interested in ESP. And I'd failed in that case, but it always would have, I always thought it would have been nice if it was true, right? right? Mm-hmm. He's telling me that the that there is a line item in the federal bu- budget that pays for people to be trained in in using ESP to spy on the on the on the Russians or whoever. I said that means it's got to be real. There's no way I'm not doing this. <laughs> yeah. So he was kind of startled. In, in within 30 seconds, I had already volunteered to, to be assigned. You know, going back a, a few moments ago, you mentioned that there was a test that they gave you. Yeah. Would it what did that test consist of? There's actually several tests. Most of them were basic personality and psychology tests. Like there's the MMPI, which I think is Minnesota Multiphasic Inventory, something like that. There was the Myers-Briggs, the extended. What was your, what was uh, your Myer, Myers-Briggs type indicator? I am a radical ENTP. <laughs> okay. I kind of pigged out in, in extroversion, intuition, thinking, and perceiving. Yeah, so... Okay. Yeah, I am a ISTJ. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, no, that's nice. <laughs> you're actually exact, almost exactly opposite of me. In fact, you've got the same profile as my wife. So, oh, boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. What that but... means is we would never get along. No, <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Actually, you're complimentary. It, it works pretty well. You each fill in the gaps that the other one has in their personality, you know, so. They're mostly just standard. There was a couple that one had been developed by the INSCOM. That's the intelligence organization. Intelli- intelligence and Security Command, right? Yeah. Well, the INSCOM staff psychologist that was to try to assess how near in personality you were to other people who had been successful in the remote viewing program. But that was pretty much it. They were pretty much pretty straightforward. But I'll tell you the other criteria they're looking for, because I know that'll be the next question. How did they pick me? The guidance they had gotten from the people who were researching this, folks out at what used to be known as Stanford Research Institute, now called SRI International, was that you wanted someone who was competent in the profession they were involved in. So in, in that case, that meant being a, a successful intelligence officer, above, above average intelligence, which despite rumors of the contrary, most intelligence officers are, Right. And then, in addition to all your military qualifications, having a pursuit, a hobby, an interest, and a creative venture of some kind. So, for example, studio art, you know, you paint or whatever, music, perform, you know, perform, you have musical, you play musical instrument, whatever, foreign languages. And that, of course, isn't so uncommon in the intelligence world, but still, and various kinds of some kind of creative activity. Well, as they got to know me, they had seen some of my artwork on the wall. I had majored in art at, at BYU before I shifted to Middle Eastern Studies. I'd illustrated some textbooks and science papers and stuff at BYU. Mm-hmm. I had played guitar since I was 17. I had, uh, well, and uh, and I liked to write short stories and send them off and get them rejected. <laughs> and of course, I was fluent in German and had had been trained in Arabic and Hebrew, although I was a little rusty by then. So they kind of got to know me and said, well, we can't not try this guy out. Right. <laughs> you know, and, and it worked out. So that, that's how that all came to be. Okay. So you say yes mm-hmm. to joining the unit. What comes next? 
Well, the first thing was they they gave me a essentially a, a chance to try it. There, there was a lot of studying for the first month or two I was in the unit. I, I read Target Put-Offs, Mind Reach, I read Mark Collier's Mind to Mind, stuff like that. They, they gave us a bunch of reading material. And I read some stuff on my own, stuff like some of the more esoteric literature, because I didn't really know what the quality stuff was, what was relevant and what wasn't. So like Ruth Montgomery's works and stuff, and she's very much kind of a medium and such. And and that was useful education. Didn't really help so much with the remote viewing, but it was useful to kind of know the domain out there, you know, of the mm-hmm. more paranormal kind of things. And then they gave me a chance to try it before we started training in January. And that was a what we call an outbounder, where some folks that you know go to a target that you don't know what it is. And then your job is to home in on them and thereby also discover the location and describe the location where they are. They act as a kind of a beacon to mm-hmm. to mark the location of where you're supposed to mentally go. And you do that totally blind. You have no idea where they went. And so I did that, and it was a mixed success. <laughs> so the target was this massive water tower, but I described the donut shop where they stopped in after mm-hmm. After they were done, my father-in-law joked, he said, trust you to go to the donuts. (laughs) Where was the, was it locally that they were going around Fort Meade or was it? Yeah, the standard model is it's within uh, 15 minutes to half an hour drive from where you are. Because the the way it works is they go to the target, you're sequestered in a, a closed room, and then you remote view where they are. And I did not remote view a water tower. Anyway, so then when they come back, they pick you up and take you to the actual location for the feedback. They don't even tell you what it is until you actually get on site. That was the model. But unfortunately, they made the mistake of stopping at the donut store as well. So that became part of the target feedback, right? Was it before that, or after they reached the target, they stopped in the donut shop? Yes, that was, that was a mistake. They We should have stopped in the donut shop after we had done gone mm. back to the target and then done that. But, you know, that's the way it goes. In a way, it was actually... In some ways, more confirming to me than if I had gotten the water tower. But Skip said, as we're driving back, he figured out what was going on long before I ever did. We're driving by, and I get it. I suddenly look over across the street. And I said, "What's that?" <laughs> you know. And Skip says, without even missing a beat, he says, "Lesson to be learned." He says, "If you don't get the target, it doesn't matter what you get instead." Yeah. And so that was a good lesson to me that you do the mission. And if you don't do the mission, it doesn't matter how psychic you are, you've still blown it. Right? Well, I think Lori Williams would say that if you get excited about missing the target but getting something else right, you're it's like a negative training effect on your subconscious. Bad reinforcement, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep, that is correct. Okay, so mixed success-ish for your first target. Was that like a culminating event before you went operational or is that just a step on the path to that was just a step on the path skip wanted you to get your feet wet before you actually went to training and so he'd run us on on ervs i might have i I know i did that one i might have run another one before we went i'm not remembering clearly about that and did they give you any train like prep training or was it was it just tell us what you can see just try to follow us Throw you in the deep end of the pool and see if you swim. Yeah. No. Well, there was a little bit. 
<laughs> as many folks know these days, Skip was actually quite integrated with the Monroe Institute. He'd gone down there and done their training and and developed a relationship with, with Bob Monroe and brought up some hemisync tapes. This is before they were actually marketing them to the general public. Bob let him take some Focus 10, Focus 12 tapes and bring them up and use those as a what, what we often call, call cool down, right? And to get us started. But getting you into that mind, this was what we called extended remote viewing or ERV, where you're in a bed, laying on a bed. And I used to joke we were the only unit in the entire DOD that had a bed as part of our operational equipment. <laughs> so anyway, you know, get to set up this mind-awake body asleep condition, which they thought allowed you to remote view more accurately. I have my doubts about that, but it works for a lot of people. Probably put you in the wrong well, not the wrong, but I think you're supposed to be in an alpha wave state to remote view. But... Uh, that, that stuff about brainwaves is nonsense. Oh, really? Yeah, it is. The SRI research showed that it doesn't matter what brain state you're in, you can still remote view. Hmm. Yeah. So what it did was actually put you in alpha, frankly, or a little bit like that, which didn't hurt anything. It just, did, in my opinion, didn't help. The idea was that if you get closer to your subconscious, as you would be in a case like that, get you closer to subconscious, then you get less mental noise, what we call analytical overlay, which is the left brain interference, right? To me, it didn't make any difference at all. I had just as much AOL either way. Well, my understanding is that as time went on for cool down, you would use heavy metal. Is that <laughs> is that correct? <laughs> we can talk about that in a bit. I, well, who, who, who was your go-to? I, I, I have to ask. What was your go-to band? Uh, I like them all, but I use uh, ACDC as the paradigm, right? Okay. Is probably I like more ACDC, a higher percentage of ACDC songs than I do of any other any other metal band. Right. Generally speaking, I don't like all of anything. Right. There are songs I like, songs I don't like, but ACDC probably the formed the backbone of my playlist. But I even had a couple of Dolly, Dolly Parton songs on my playlist. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I have a wide variety, of, and the goal was not so much the genre. Okay, we're talking about my cool down now, right? Yeah, uh, that's fine. The goal wasn't necessarily. I mean, my the, the genre wasn't what was important. Is how it made me feel. To me, so cool down, let me back up. The idea of cool down is that you, before you do a session, you try and get yourself in a state of mind that's conducive to being successful. Right? And some people think, well, you try and blank your mind out. Now, first of all, you can't do it. Second of all, you don't want to do that. If you blank your mind out, then it also blanks out the signal. Right? Mm -hmm. To me, it was kind of get myself, because I always have doubts before I do a session. Is it going to work this time? Can I do it? Am I going to blow it this time? You know, I always have those doubts. So for me, the playlist, and this is, of course, on the old Walkman, you know, cassette players, right? I mixed those tapes myself. The goal was, it was kind of like a, a halftime pep talk that the coach gives his players to get them back up and fighting out on the field, right? So to me, it was kind of a mental encouragement. Yes, I can do this. Yes, mm -hmm. I go in with a positive, positive emotion, you know, that I'm going to succeed at this. And, and that's how a cool down really wasn't cool down. It was more of a ramping up, right? But but still, that's the term we call it, we use it. Some people did cool down, and like I said, I didn't find that particularly beneficial. You know, the cooling down, calming down. It was more get myself excited, stimulated, ready to go, and that worked pretty well for me. So, okay, so 
you go through this initial training and then you go operational. What sorts of targets, to the extent that you can discuss them, did they deploy you against? The very first operational target we did, and we did it before we were even operational. We did it. We I think we've been partly through our stage four training in event of a total of, of six stages. Was uh, Enrico Camarena, who was a DEA officer agent, who had been kidnapped by a cartel in El Paso and taken across the border and tortured and killed in a hacienda in northern Mexico. Of course, nobody knew where they were, and so they even came to us. And, and by this time, our main viewer, that was Joe McMonigle, and a lot of your folks probably know who Joe McMonigle was. Joe McMonigle had retired. Lynn Buchanan had come on, and we were just in the process of training him. I had, mm-hmm. you know, and I was one of his main trainers at the time. We even used him, as I recall. I don't think, I don't remember how far into his training he was, but I think we even used him, even though he was, of course, not nearly as far far along as we were at that time. And all of us worked the project, and it was our first time doing a real-world one. Everything had been training for that. And interestingly, we never got official feedback, but my session the next day, they they found out where where he had, was and found his body, and they had images, you know, on the news of where he was. And my sketches matched it. I was I was quite quite impressed because I hadn't really felt like I was getting anything that was worthwhile. But that taught me a lesson that remote viewers are the the last ones in the world to know whether they're actually on or not. If you think you are on, very often you're not. If you think you're off, very often you are. And so one of the things you learn from that, it's I, I talk about remote viewing very, being a very Zen experience. The, the, this parallel I, I occurred to me back even at Fort Meade. I'm thinking, well, this is, this is really kind of Zen because you have to let go of any investment in, in the outcome. If you're focused on the outcome, you're going to mess up. Yeah, it brings to mind this uh, far side cartoon where the guy playing the cymbals in the orchestra, you know, he's back in the back and, and he's got this thought bubble. This time I'm not going to mess up. This time I'm not going to mess up. This time I'm not going to mess up. And the caption is Harry messes up <laughs> because he's he's gotten so busy focusing on not messing up that he forgot to pick up the other symbol. He's only got one. <laughs> so if that's the thing you have to avoid in remote viewing is focusing so much on being successful, focus so much on not failing that you actually do fail mess up this like in the zen element is in zen you're supposed to focus on process not outcome in zen archery it's all about how you grasp the bow how you knock the arrow how you draw back your breathing how you release and whether or not you hit the target is is has to be secondary to doing the process and if you succeed in that in remote viewing you increase the chances you're going to be successful dramatically by not worrying about success. And did you find that you became the more operations that you did, the better you became? Or was it kind of you reach a steady state early on and and it remains? You know, that's hard to assess what counts as a certain level of success, right? Because with remote viewing, it's never 100%. Sometimes you screw up. And don't make it, don't get it. And sometimes you do get it. And, and which is normal. We don't know what the boundary conditions of this are, right? We don't know what the causality is. We don't know how remote viewing works in terms of signal and 
reception, all that. We generally know how to behave in a way that increases your chances of succeeding, but we don't know how to measure ultimately how all of that comes together. So it's very much an art, even more than a science, obviously. So I had more significant successes later on in my career. Yeah, I I guess I got better as time went on. Um, And I've watched other viewers that seem to get better as time goes on, but it still doesn't mean you're not going to screw up. You know, you're going to, I shouldn't say screw up because things happen no matter how hard you, how, how much you're trying to apply the correct principles. And it has probably has to do with the uncertainties and unknowns of the process itself. So, I mean, in baseball, baseball is a good example. You know, you get folks, the really good batters hit, what is it, a third of the time, <laughs> you know, and, and they get better and better over the time, but they certain, they reach a certain plateau, and it doesn't go beyond that because there are variables over which they have no control, and that's kind of the way it is remote viewing. So, yeah, I, I don't feel like I really answered your question and yet answered it sort of. No, I think you did. I, I think much like anything else, right, there's probably a very – steep improvement in the very beginning because you literally go from zero to being able to use the ability relatively quickly and then you know it's kind of like an s-curve just like just like everything else launching a new product but at some point you're going to hit the limit as that curve approaches infinity is going to be pretty fixed so what's the weirdest target either operational or in training you had to Fort Meade. I've had weirder ones since. <laughs> but... Well, I, th- I think in the next episode we'll talk about the weirder ones. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. At at Fort, Fort Meade, what was the strangest? So that's a hard one because most of the time we were doing practical targets, real world targets, right? There were some unsettling ones and surprising ones, but weird ones were probably ones we weren't supposed to be doing anyway, like UFO ET targets, and those. We as viewers didn't choose to do. Those got chosen for us. Because one of the things people don't understand often about remote viewing is that you can't know what, as a viewer, you can't know what the target is up front. Because if you do, it will mess the process up dramatically. There are folks out there, some of my former colleagues, notoriously one of them, who swears that you can remote view 100% correct all the time. Front loaded. Front loaded means you know what the target is. The evidence shows that he's totally wrong about that. <laughs> so, Rhymes with med med teams? Could could be. Yeah, could be. The problem is that when you're remote viewing front-loaded, that everything you already know about the target or can guess about it is right there in your head. Mm-hmm. And it'll it can lead you off totally off the signal. In fact, it tends to blanket to smother the actual subtle signal coming in with the information that you don't know about it because you're so busy trying to sort out what you do know or what can guess about it in your head. If you're blind to the target, that's much less of a problem. And you tend to be more accurate, much more accurate, if you don't know what the target is than if you do. So, well, in this same same person, Schmed Thames, or whatever you said, <laughs> the same person would often, I don't say often, but often enough would would spring these you thought you were doing an operational target and he'd spring this ufo or ut targets on you and so uh, some of those were pretty strange but i also well let me let me add the qualification here skip atwater would occasionally do that also 
But Skip would do it the proper protocol. Yeah, that's a whole topic of conversation, how you do it properly. But but he would do it in a way I trusted our other friend, uh, Ted, <laughs> as, so, as Lynn Buchanan calls him. Would it be fair to say, because again, I'm, I'm, I'm interpreting this, mm-hmm. but one one person might present it to you as just, here's today's target, and not paint it in any way, whereas the other person might say, we're going to view an operational target somewhere in the world. And then it turned out to be like a UFO. Yeah. It, that that's part of the problem. The other part of the problem is uh, Skip at least would present these uh, Enigma targets or or uh, anomaly targets, as I call them. He'd present, he'd give them to you as a training target. Say there's a training target, right? But he also restricted the kinds of targets to events or anom- phenomena that there was at least strong reason to believe actually there was something to it. There's some evidence, like the Phoenix Lights people saw, that you could at least somewhat corroborate. Yes, and and okay. at least that there was reason to believe there might be something there. So I might as well just say Ed Dames. Everybody's figured out it was Ed Dames by now. Ed Sorry. would often just give you totally speculative targets. Like one he liked to use was the Supreme Galactic Council or something like that. Well, there's no evidence there is a Supreme Collective Council. That's pure speculation. And I would never run a remote viewer on a speculative target like that because it's it's really bad for their their functioning as a remote viewer ultimately. And it invites all kinds of misunderstandings and misperceptions and stuff. And and so a lot of our targets were like that from from Ed. And so, yeah, they were weird, but legitimately weird, you know, or is it just something that your brain made up because it did, there wasn't an actual target, you know? So to the extent that you're comfortable with discussing this, what was the most unsettling target you did while you were at Fort Meade? That was the one that disturbed me the most. It was an accident in a Soviet biochemical warfare lab. Interesting. The Soviets had the facility, and I don't know, don't recall much of the details of this, you could look it up. There's an accident in a biowarfare lab. There's an underground facility. A bunch of people died, apparently. Of course, obviously, it's hard to get records about that even now. Piers, a bunch of people died. And I came into the session and and kind of linked up with a guy that was in the process of choking to death. And I recognized that. And I even experienced, I say experience, it's a mental experience of of his distress, you know. By location, basically. Yeah, it was yeah. Although we should talk about biolocation because I've been using that term wrong as have a bunch of other people. But essentially, I, I, I identified a little too much with a person I, dete- I det- discovered at the target, and that was distressful. It was kind of traumatic. It went horrible for me. I was I was able to get over it, but at the time it was disturbing, right? And so that's probably the the t- one target that really. I found unsettling or, or what outbreak, like what pathogen was. Oh, I don't know. And in fact, I think it was probably chemical, right? Actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And and then since you've left the unit, since you've retired, what sorts of things have you used remote viewing for since? So of course my main focus has always been training and I'll, get to an answer to your question here in a minute. So, and the reason I focus mainly on training is because uh, I feel like we need to leave a bunch of well 
trained remote viewers behind. Some folks like Joe McMonigle, he didn't believe you can train it. I hear he's changed his tune recently, but I, I don't know. He believed that you either could do it or you couldn't, and training wouldn't make a difference, right? And so he did a lot of operational remote viewing, but he didn't train anybody. And so when he passes on, then away goes the resource too, because he didn't leave anyone behind who could also do it. And I figure I get more bang for the buck, both literally and figuratively, teaching other people how to do it in in the proper way, and so that there is a installed base, so to speak, left behind when I either retire or or you know kick the bucket, which ultimately, presumably, I will. Nobody believes that's going to happen to him until it does. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, but I do do it operationally sometimes. Right, I used to do it more. The problem with an operational project is it takes a huge amount of time that could maybe be used more productive, like by teaching people how to other people how to do it, and then let them do the operational stuff, right? So I've done a number of missing persons cases. I've done some corporate espionage stuff. One case where there was a corporate mole in a in a large company. They knew the mole was there, but they couldn't quite identify who it was. So their chief security officer asked me to to try and do that. So we did a project on it. In fact, we described a person and it matched the description of somebody who was under suspicion anyway. And so that was kind of confirmatory for them. We did one corporate espionage where one company believed that another company had stolen some intellectual property, industrial process. And they had tried to find out conventionally and were unsuccessful. So a mutual competitive intelligence company that they hired to do it was Phoenix Consulting Group, and the principal's name was John Nolan, who's a good friend of mine, and had actually been on the periphery of all this stuff when he was an Army officer at Army Operations Group, the same time I was there. He was, in fact, what we call the Colonel's Twilight Zone officer, <laughs> because he his assignment was to research some of this bleeding wow. edge human human potential stuff and remote viewing was part of that mix in fact he had a nameplate on his desk that was carmine g tizio t-i-z-i-o which stood for twilight zone officer right because <laughs> you know he was a he was a counterintelligence and human intelligence guy so he often had alternate identities when he was doing you know that kind of work and so that was his his alternate identity. You know, as you can see, I, I tend to squirrel. <laughs> I get off the topic sometimes. Right? No, no, that's it's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, John owned this company, and so he thought, well, maybe remote viewing can help. So he approached me, and we did it. And ten years pass. Might have been longer than that. Might have been almost twenty. And we never got any feedback on our results. You know, did was it useful? Was it not? They never, nobody ever told us. So I'm talking to John, I guess it was about a year or two ago. And I said, by the way, whatever happened with that project we did for you? And he said, didn't you hear anything back on that? I said, no. Oh, well, they, they brought the data you produced. They had this uh, confrontation between the lawyers of the, the, the two companies. They brought your data in and presented it to the, the lawyers of the corporation and they immediately settled. <laughs> Did they tell them where they probably didn't tell them where it they came from? Tell them where the information yeah. came from. But but when the when the corporation that had committed the intellectual property theft saw what the information was that the victim company had, they immediately rolled over and said, "Okay, we're going to settle." <laughs> oh my god! 
So you don't have to answer this question, but I, I ask everybody this question. Does the U.S. government still use this program? Yeah, of course, that, that question comes up all the time. And my answer is, I doubt it. Okay, and I can't say absolutely no. It's hard to prove a negative, particularly when you're no longer on the inside. Mm-hmm. But people say, well, the CIA still got a program going on. Well, I'm pretty sure they don't. Hal Putoff and I were approached a few years back by a, essentially it was a second-tier executive from the CIA about the possibility of starting up the program. That never went anywhere because the director nixed the idea. We got that from the person who approached us. But if they're coming to ask us how we start a program, you know they don't have a program. What about you? What about them using contractors? Well, that that has happened off and on, particularly during the early days of the war on terror. Right, I and my group got asked to provide remote viewing services to try and find a missing MP who had been kidnapped by Qaeda in Iraq during convoy. They attacked convoy and they took this guy off. So we were asked to do that. And I know that they have asked other people opportunistically. Usually it's actually the mid-level operator level. So you get a case officer or something, you know, who has some Intel contingency funds, that's money that they can use at their discretion to try and acquire information. And they may approach a remote viewer and say, hey, can you do this? And I can pay you X amount of dollars. But the, generally speaking, the people way up the food chain, the people who actually are the major decision makers, they don't want to have anything to do with it. It just yeah, they don't want to have they don't want to be connected with it because they yeah, might think yeah. it's too woo woo or something. Yeah. But it does happen, and I also acknowledge it's possible that NSA has a program. There are some little tantalizing tidbits that suggest they might. They did have one. It was just a, a small one compared to ours back when I was being trained, and I never heard anywhere they canceled it. And on top of that, every once in a while, something comes out from a, a fairly reliable sources that maybe they do have a program, but there's nothing concrete about it. So I say there's a 98% chance nothing is going on in terms of any official or even a sub Rosa program, but there's always a 2% chance there might be. Um, I like to repeat something Lynn Buchanan says. He says, when he gets asked that question, I've heard him respond, well, if there was a program going on, I don't have a clearance anymore, so I would just say I can't tell you because I wouldn't know. He says, if there was a program going on and I knew about it, it would be classified. So I'd have to say I can't tell you. So I'm just going to say I can't tell you. (laughs) He, He might have even used that in your interview with him. Yeah, I think he did. He, he absolutely, absolutely did. It's become so, a cliche, sorry. <laughs> uh, so the Russians and the Chinese, do you think they're still using this? I don't think the Russians are. It's uncertain if the Chinese are. Um, I know that in their culture, things that are like Qigong and stuff like that, you know, that that's stuff that's accepted in their culture. Being a, a Marxist, government, it's hard to see whether they would allow it in or not. But I I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. And then while you were in the remote viewing program, were you ever approached or surveilled by the KGB, GRU? No. No. That you know of? Well, I'm pretty confident that I wasn't, even if I didn't know about it, right? One of the reasons for the high classification program is because the only way to, to guarantee that somebody's not going to remote view you is to take them out 
Right. And so the highest level of protection in the program wasn't for the fact that government was involved or what our targets were. It was the identity of the viewers and the personnel. That was the highest level of, of classification, what we called CL4, CL1 being kind of confidential, CL4 being really tight. And you had to be really, you had to have really good reason to be read onto that level of access in the program. And very, very, very few people did. And they were very well vetted. So I really don't think so. I don't think this, this, I think the Soviets probably knew there was some kind of program going on, but they didn't know where it was. And they didn't know who was in it. I'm, I'm quite confident of that. And so, yeah, no. Now you mentioned you teach remote viewing. If people want to take a course with you or actually read your book as well, a, What's the title of the book? Where can they find it? And then B, how can they sign up for classes? So I have and I'll put the books. information in the description below. Okay. Where, okay. Uh, so first off, I have two books that are worthwhile, I think. Of course, I think they are. My first one was called Reading the Enemy's Mind, Inside Stargate, America's Psychic Espionage Program. And that is more of, a, I hate to call it a history because people panic. They say, I don't want to read a history book, you know. <laughs> but it really was. It, it was, I, I documented the program starting when it very first started all the way up to its end. And I did a ton of research on this book. You know, most of the books you read out there from my colleagues are memoirs, and they're uh, done mostly out of their own memories. And consequently, it's very self-centric, mm-hmm. and the details aren't there, and many of what appear to be facts are actually wrong because they're misremembering things, Right. I knew that was a a risk when I started my book. And so I have interviews from somewhere over 50 of the principal people involved in the program. I dug up as many documents as I could and referred to as many documents as were available. Now, there's parts that I had to fill in with memory, but I tried to check my memories with other people who were there at the same time. So that book is, is in fact, both Ingo Swan and Hal Putoff, who are obviously the main people in getting this going, Speaking uh, of which, Inga Swan's picture looks like right yes, behind you, I think. Yes, it is. Yeah. Although it does look a little bit like Zelensky, too. So just. Uh, well, you know, they're both great guys, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, so, and I see you're trying to rock that look a little bit, too. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I Not intentionally. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, facial hair kind of has the same look on everybody, but no. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, in fact, that's a, that's a photo that he personally signed and and gave to me. I, I was very flattered by that, that he did that. I had no idea. So anyway, the two of them, both of them said that that book was the best book there's ever been written on the program. So I felt like that was a good endorsement. In fact, Hal bought, I, you know, I don't want to say he bought about a dozen copies and gave them to all his friends. <laughs> yeah, actually, when I asked David Morehouse about which which book covers the history the best he he recommended your book as well. Well, that was nice of him. I appreciate that. Yeah. And second book, what was the second book? Sorry, trying to. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, I got off on a tangent. The second book is probably mm-hmm. the one best for people who are interested in remote viewing per se. Now, the first book I do talk a lot about our training, got a lot of theory and stuff. This book is a kind of a survey of the field. It's called the Essential Guide to Remote Viewing. And the point of it is, it's like, you know, you take a survey class in the university, they cover all the topics associated. This one covers all the topics. It deals with some of the more remarkable 
uh, projects that were worked and results. It deals with the science behind it. That he's like, what is remote viewing in the first place? And how does it fit in with all these other psychic abilities people have? I talk about the science behind it. And I talk about the skeptical arguments against it and the arguments against the skeptical arguments. And there are basically three chapters in there that actually tell you how to do it yourself at a, at a basic you know, foundational level and give you some exercises that you can work. And then there's a chapter showing two chapters on actual results, the statistical results from the research, and then actual, what we call prima facie results, showing, you know, showing actual results and how it compares to the targets. And, and there's some quite stunning results there to see. So, and, and so on from there. The book is very, is a very thorough, but easy introduction to remote viewing for people who either, well, it's for people who are just getting acquainted with it, or it's for people who are acquainted with it, but have friends and family who wonder what this weird thing is they're involved in. They can give this to their family without fear of scaring them away or their friends. And then it's for people who are in remote viewing, but they have holes in their knowledge and would like to try and fill those holes in. So that's it. That's why I call it the essential guide to remote viewing, because it'll it'll give you an awesome foundation to to what this weird stuff is that we're doing. Now, while this episode won't air before Black Friday, it will air before Christmas. So if you need some Christmas gift ideas for oh. people who are notoriously difficult to buy things for, yeah, both of those books could be interesting gifts. That's now, the awesome class, classes that you offer. You you have become my latest hero. <laughs> well, well, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see how many sales you get. Uh, it all yeah, depends yeah, on yeah. that. And it's available. Uh, there's a website for it, but it's most easily available on Amazon, obviously. So, yeah. And then courses that you teach, where can folks? Yeah. So I, I teach, first of all, the controlled remote viewing, which is a, a specialized form of, of remote viewing that Ingo Swan and Hal put off developed, which is aimed at helping people who've never been psychic or never remote viewed before, help them become very proficient at it. And you can find out about those at my website, which is rviewer.com, the letter R, the word viewer. So R-V-I-E. And it'll be down in the link. Yeah, Just click cool. there. Thanks. All right, my friend, it was a pleasure meeting you. And I look forward to many such discussions. I, I'm sure there's a lot I could talk about. <laughs> <laughs> I know there is. Yeah. All right, well, thank you very much. You betcha, it's been fun. If you enjoyed this video, hit like and subscribe, and I'll see you next time.